Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Let's get this show on the road. We're off to hug trees today, and in doing so, we'll be visiting Streatham, where a very special garden has been installed in a primary school, which is no stranger to episodes of horticultural experimentation. Now, before we do that, we've had quite a bit of interest in last week's episode, The Panorama of the Thames. Uh, thank you for your positive comments. And uh, we've had some correspondence as well about my introduction, in which I mentioned uh, John, who appeared on the show, his uh, heart situation and the alleged curse of Superman. <laughs> now, I am in no way taken in by this curse of Superman business, which almost certainly means that I will not survive the week. And indeed, many of the uh, younger crop of actors who have played the Man of Steel, they also give no credence to the idea that those who were involved in the Superman films often met difficult fates. And indeed, one correspondent has pointed out quite correctly that the curse allegedly applied to people who died during shooting the movie or shortly after. And uh, as the film was completed, 37 years ago, most of the people who worked on it would now be in their 70s or 80s or dead. And uh, that's quite right, of course. If you follow the logic through, then uh, eventually the curse of Superman will claim uh, even everybody who's ever heard of the word Superman. Just give it enough time. So putting that to one side, what about John's heart? Well, I described it as exploding, and in conversation off mic, uh, John described it to me as a, a, a kind of a bubble that grows up uh, inside the heart, undetected, and frankly, if it pops, then chances of surviving are very rare indeed. Uh, the technical term for this is a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm, R A, and it's not very uncommon as a cause of death, actually. Um, John has a very healthy heart as it currently stands. But there's there's more than that. Only one in ten people get surgery after a rupture like this, and only one in ten of those survive the surgery. So that's a obviously a survival rate of one in a hundred. And before modern surgery, uh, you, you'd had it. And so as a very rare survivor of this condition, John is something of a celebrity case study among the uh, medical and surgical fraternity. He's taken part in national programs to encourage screening for the condition. And this is really the big story. He's uh, survived. He's recovered he's worked on the panoramas that we were talking about and in doing so innovated a lot of new stuff with photography and software that lets everyone see the banks of the thames in this magical way the very poignant side note of course to somebody working in his line is that his eyesight was the greatest casualty and unfortunately continues to deteriorate so that's the fine detail for those of you who wanted to hear a little bit more about that so without further ado let's nudge it forward by a week from the 7th to the 14th of November 2014. I'm Anne Quentin Wolf, and this is Londonist Out Loud. Hey, baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before, just a strong throw from your front door. Hey, 
two deluges are imminent on this week's recording. Looking up at the sky here from South London, the clouds are low, they're dark, and uh, a downpour is to be expected. And the buildings just behind me are about to disgorge a lot of children. It's just coming up for home time here at Hitherfield Primary School. And for reasons which will become clear, we're standing in the garden with me, Sharon Johnson, the Chief Executive of Trees for Cities. Hi, Sharon. Hello, hi. Hi. We're standing next to the flower beds, and uh, normally when one thinks of a tree that would be something towering over you the stuff we can see around here that has been nicely mulched in by the looks of it is a lot smaller in scale what are we doing in uh, Heatherfield Primary School's garden? Right what we've done here is create an edible playground and so we've transformed the school grounds into a food growing space for the kids to get excited and to learn about healthy eating and food growing Okay, so this differs in what way from your standard school garden that I remember from years ago, which involved growing a lot of uh, radishes. Yes, so what we've done here is complete... Um, really transform the grounds so the kids can learn about you know picking apples growing strawberries growing pumpkins um, a green carpet where we're planting nitrogen fixing plants to improve the soil we've got um, down pipes here where they're collecting and harvesting water we've got strawberry drawers over here so the children so we've um, recycled um, some drawers there that children have planted strawberries in. These bare description, listener, they are a set of drawers. It's uh, a stripped-down pine chest of three that you find in the local junk store, and uh, they are open. The bottom one's out furthest, and uh, they're like a set of stairs. It's just really engaging for the kids. So what we want them to do is get excited about food. So a lot of children still think, you know, food comes from a supermarket. They don't understand that things are grown in the ground. And so we want to make it as accessible and it really is about making it exciting for them first thing that i noticed and i maybe could give a a little bit of description here because i think it would be difficult to do justice if we didn't specify just how big this garden is it's a whopper sharon's trying to tell me how many feet long it is i'm going to say it's 44 feet long 30 meters so whatever that that is in yeah feet i'm not sure no, we do not speak the same language. Kid that knows maths. <laughs> yes, uh, but it's it's a beast of a thing. Uh, the bed, oh, I'm quite impressed by the beds. Uh, none of this uh, rectangular stuff. These are all sorts of shapes. I think they've been designed to look like the rays of the sun emanating from the building, or that might be a happy accident. And uh, off to my left, there are what look like uh, vine trellises. Yes, absolutely. So we're going to have soft fruits growing over them as well. So there's going to be raspberries, black currants, all sorts of different soft fruits so the garden is zoned if you like into soft fruits then you've got all your potatoes and um, pumpkins then you've got your cabbages and carrots and all that type of thing so so it's zoned so that you will get sort of different um, types of fruit and vegetables at um, in different areas and if you look um, all the areas they've got spacing between them so children can come out here and move between the spaces quite easily we've got the raised beds so they are all recycled um, sleepers so the children can sort of perch their bottoms, their little bottoms on the edge so that um, you know they're going to have lessons out here. So that is key to it. It's getting the kids out here and it's not an add-on to the school. It's very much about engaging the children throughout the whole school year, throughout the curriculum as well. So every um, year class um, will be using the garden. So whether it's from math, science, geography, whatever, it will be part of the school curriculum and it's definitely not an add-on. 
you'll be hearing, listener, the train line which borders the school grounds here. And talking of the school grounds, it strikes me that there there might have been some... Controversy is probably too strong a word, mm. but uh, there would have surely been a fierce debate here because these gardens do take up a sizable portion of the green space at the back of the school. They take it takes up a sliver, I would say. <laughs> well, no, in, in fairness, I reckon in terms of uh, the depth, that's about a third. So this is this is a this is a big choice that's been made here. It has actually, yes, it's been because the school is called Hitherfield. And so it's renowned for its field. So there was a lot of engagement um, with the school community, with the parents, with the children. So it's, it's been driven by the school. So they did the, um, the building work um, on the school, which you can see here, where they've had this um, new area added. And then the next stage was to look at the grounds and how they could you know, make the use of the grounds. But actually, the school, through the building work, they gained outside space, which you would normally expect them to lose it, which was amazing. So, so it was a whole sort of school community consultation, engagement, where they really are behind, you know, teaching children, you know, where food comes from, how to grow it, and also how to cook it. So there's a huge issue these days with um, food poverty, health, healthy children, children understanding um, what they eat and what a healthy diet means. So this is part of that solution, and it's a fun part of that solution. Possibly one of the first ports of call is to ask about the sort of people who attend the school and uh, the sort of access that, uh, from your experience so far, they're likely to have to this stuff uh, were it not for this garden. Yeah, so a lot of children um, from this area don't have gardens. Um, They live in flats. You know, perhaps they have a balcony. And so one thing that we want to do is show them that actually they can um, grow things in small areas as well. So if you look at the raised beds, anything here could be transferred into a small recycled pot onto a balcony as well. And they don't have access. They don't have large gardens. So this is um, a way of actually providing that access to them. And it's a great way for children that, you know, may find some parts of school difficult. Um, it's, you know, m- maybe there's achievement issues or whatever. It's a, it's a way of engaging them and their parents into school life. We'll come back and talk some more about the specifics of this project. But it struck me that we've not been to this part of town before. And we're clearly, if you have a look at the map, we're clearly between several major points. Yeah, so we fall in between. So this is actually Streatham. So, but we've got um, Tulse Hill close by and also West Norwood. So there's various um, areas that this school serves. I think we're going to have to beat a tactical retreat. It's, uh, as you'll have heard, the wind is starting to get up and that usually means the rain is here. The parents are also here. So we're going to duck inside. I've got to say, this was always my favourite time of school. It's interesting how some of the old feelings about school have resurfaced in me as we've walked through the, uh, I've got to say, very welcoming and uh, friendly reception area. And um, it's maybe a mark of how much they've changed since I was at school. There's an interview room here. I'm wondering whether this is uh, actually dedicated for media use or not. It seems like it could be. Uh, We're going to be talking to some of the pupils here shortly, but I think we should turn our attention to your organisation. And it seems like you're acting well outside your remit if we're talking about uh, uh, fruits on vines and things like that. You're definitely trees for cities. Yes, so we are trees for cities. Um, And so in terms of our schoolwork, we started planting fruit and nut trees in school grounds. So that was very much in keeping with what we do trees for cities so it's getting people engaged with um with trees in their in the urban environment how do you end up planting trees around london me oh okay well i've been um engaged in environmental work for 
oh, I don't want to tell you how old I am, but um, you know, for you know, for more than a decade. So um, yeah, so my background is environment, and it's really about you know where people, you know, eighty percent of the population are going to be living in cities by twenty fifty. Um, we need to be planting trees and improving the environment where people live, and trees, you know. They were planted by the Victorians um, over a hundred years ago, and people look out the window and go, "Oh, it's fine. You know, our trees, our cities are well treated. It's not an immediate priority." But with all the problems that you have with um, tree diseases, um, development, and just because they're getting old, we are losing our tree population. And if we don't do something about it now, the legacy that we've been left by the Victorians is just going to vanish. So we've got a duty now to replenish the tree stock that the um, that the Victorians left us. I hadn't heard that before. I know that there was a bit, well, there was a big, every, anything to do with civic and civil development. The Victorians did it in spades, didn't they? But uh, particularly the public parks, a lot of those surfaced uh, during the Victorian era. Um, what about the trees, though? Are you talking about trees that are along uh, streets and all of that stuff? Was there a big surge of that going on yes. as well? Yeah, absolutely. And so a lot of the large trees that we have in our cities, you know, they live to 100 years old or more. You go to, OK, we talk locally, um, Brockwell Park. It's got an oak there. Go and have a look. The Brockwell Oak. Um, some people don't know whether it's 500 years old, 700 years old or 900 years old. So it's amazing that we've got, OK, that was obviously before the Victorians. But a lot of the street trees that we have today, if you look along Embankment, you look in um, Brixton, just outside the um, Tate Library, some of those beautiful trees there. Many of the street, large street trees that we have um, and in parks as well, the large trees in parks were planted by the Victorians. OK, so it's never struck me and I've never spent any time thinking about trees I've spent lots of time enjoying them but never uh, considered that they have different ages for example Mm. what what are the considerations when you look at what different parts of London do with trees South Bank uh, readily comes to mind for example or Speaker's Corner they're very particular kinds of trees there I want to say plane trees I'm not sure yes probably yes Uh, probably plane trees yeah and and what would you be thinking about when you're looking at those particular choices that have been made of those trees in in that area how wise are they what other choices could have been made well I think you know any trees that are large long living you know are fantastic trees that we've got you know generally they are but what's happened afterwards is developments come along and actually it's often the house that's been put in the wrong place and so they've been it's been put next to a large tree but what, what the problem is now is that we do have an aging tree structure and so as we're sort of losing a lot of those trees or we will be over the next you know few decades we need to be replacing them and that's the issue at the moment it's replacing those trees and it's it's getting harder and harder to find places for those trees to go as a non-tree specialist there's two problems that strike me straight away one of them being that you uh, you know like the puppy you get for christmas eventually i guess there's an awareness that that's going to be a much bigger beast so i presume there must be some sort of caution there you're not going to want to plant a tree that's just going to keep getting bigger and bigger you know, so big and then it's going to fall down in the next major gust of wind but the, the the other bit of that is do developers make therefore safe choices with kind of boring tiny trees that aren't going to cause any trouble or what, what are the issues around that yes yeah, so there's definitely a policy of um, planting the right tree in the right place and um, I think sort of going back to your you know comment earlier you know so some bad decisions have been made in the past but you know so for us it's very much about getting the right tree in the right place 
in terms of a lot of tree planting, there has been this cycle of planting what we call lollipop trees. And so they are the, you know, the small trees that might only, you know, live for, you know, 15, 20, 30 years. And so there has been this huge move away from planting those large, majestic trees. And so we have a project called um, Great Trees of London. And so that was celebrating the great trees that we do have, the long living, majestic trees that have a story to tell or some historical significance and then what we've been doing over the um, so that was celebrating the trees that had already been planted and are still with us and um, what we've been doing over the last few years is planting a project called the future great trees so looking at those you know special places where we can get in those um, long living large canopy trees that provide you know more benefits for us all the, the big conflict here of course must be the lack of housing uh, that must be the, the other thing, because we can all get behind the idea that there aren't enough houses, there aren't enough affordable houses, but presumably the competition for, for land is uh, something you're coming directly into contact with. Yes, but with, with trees, you know, it's good planning, isn't it? You know, it's being able to, you know, not have the, you know, outs- outside space, the landscaping, the trees as a second thought, but actually planning it in with the development. And actually, developers are getting better at it, you know. Um, I don't have any specific statistics now, but, you know, generally, you know, people are, you know, there is more awareness around the need for, you know, good green spaces, you know, for trees. So so there is, you know, more now in terms of um, improving that in terms of the planning than um, I'd say there were, you know, a decade or two ago. You sound like somebody who's very used to making the sort of cases you're making here. It sounds as though you're regularly in a position of having to do so, which makes sense with your organisation, of course. I'm just wondering where the care about and for environmental stuff and uh, natural things, where did that come from? Well... I just think that everyone, you know, for me, it's just being out within nature just improves the happiness and joy of everyone. I mean, if you're sort of stuck in a concrete, you know, if you look at a picture, you know, something like embankment, you know, with trees without, I mean, it is ghastly. It is, you know, it's so bare and stark that who wants to live in a world like that and so all the time we're looking at you know important things in terms of improving people's lives you know whether it's health or um, whatever but actually the well-being and mental well-being of people you know has got to be um, at the forefront as well what's the point of living a life when you're just sort of in a stark environment that is isn't joyful and, um, and it's about bringing you know happiness and well-being to you know the populations and you know most of the population are living in cities so to me that's where our focus should be it might be worth as well looking at uh, parks and I, I guess this must overlap with what you do also you hear a lot about green spaces particularly playing fields actually which of course are often bounded by trees but also one or two uh, public parks are in uh, other sorts of jeopardy hillside park just up the way here are you able to give us a, a bit of a london-wide perspective on what's happening generally in terms of maybe not directly uh, access to trees or trees in the street but more generally sort of green spaces and greenness what's the trend i guess it's you know often comes down to finances and money you know so in terms of you know the local councils um you know there is an issue in terms of you know cutbacks and um, managing green spaces and so there will be looking at the most financially viable and cost-effective way of doing it and that might mean really sort of low maintenance activities rather than good horticultural skills so we have managed parks in the past and so for us it's it's been about you know looking at whether a park has got um, a victorian um 
landscape to it or growing wild flowers as well as the trees. So you've got that horticultural element to it as well as, you know, the bog standard, okay, how can we do this as cheaply as possible? I'd be very surprised if you haven't been involved in Victoria Park. We have actually, yes. But more on the education side, actually. So, um, so we've been working, we've done tree trails for, um, for local people and for children. And that's about raising awareness of the importance of trees and open spaces. Um, I heard, and um, I, I never trust my memory, so um, I just want to float this in front of you, and you tell me whether I've, I've got this right. You'll, you'll know straight away, I think. I was walking down the street one day, and there was a fellow planting a tree in the middle of the road. And when I say planting a tree in the middle of the road, I, I mean both of those things. He, you've got your two lanes of the road, and he was in the middle of one of the lanes planting an enormous great uh, thing. And I asked him what he was doing, and he said, he kind of shrugged and said, oh, council said I've got to do this. And I was in the middle of the road, and he said, yeah, I know it's wrong, uh, you know it's wrong, but this is what they've asked for. And I said, well, how, how much does this tree cost? And he said it was £20,000 to plant this uh, tree in the middle of the road. Now, it's still there, I know, I know where it is, and they haven't done anything with it except for block off both ends of the road awkwardly because clearly they planted this tree in the wrong place I, m- I might turn this into a bigger story at some point but this is all true so far um but the thing that really jumped out at me was the was the cost and i'm distrusting my memory a little i'm i'm, I'm sort of 99 sure that he he said that that was the cost of it but does that ring remotely true with you to plot well i guess it was in the middle of a road not a central reservation no, in the in the middle of the, of one of the two uh, you know paths of the of the road. It is very expensive to plant a tree in a street. So it's because of underground services digging the roads, you know, blocking off traffic. Um, and so I've always thought that actually a way to do it is you know because there's so many roadworks going on. And so if there was a way of joining up, you know, with utility companies, so when they're building, you know, so when they're digging up the roads to lay pipes whatever they're doing if they could actually then create a tree pit at the same time then that to me because most of the cost you know a tree is a couple of hundred pounds maybe three you know depending on the size but it's actually creating the tree pit which is the costly thing so you've got people digging up the roads and if they could actually um, assess the viability of creating a tree pit at the same time they would save fortune oh that's interesting so all the cost is in a surveyor or an engineer or some, somebody of that sort yes for the, for the street trees yes and so that's you know it's very expensive so normally you'd be talking you know maybe towards the thousand pound mark for a tree but obviously if that's one tree you know more trees and you've got it's more cost effective um twenty thousand is pretty excessive i would say um but i haven't seen this tree um listen we need to take a word from our sponsor and we're going to be back and gauging the reaction to the edible playground after this london Est out loud is sponsored by audible to claim your free audiobook from a range of sixty thousand titles try the audible service on 30-day free trial audiobooks can be saved as mp3s and played on your compatible phone tablet or desktop or burned to cd and they're yours to keep for your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist and click through. You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolfe and uh, we're in Heatherfield Primary School. Well, we're outside Heatherfield Primary School and we're going to find the head teacher just now. Glancing across to the edible playground and nobody is eating or playing within the playground. But then it is home time, and I know where I'd be going at home time. I'm with a person I take to be a mum. Otherwise, yes. you, you've, uh, you've got a child following you around. Do you know about this? Yes, two children. Two. <laughs> um, and both, both attending this school? Yes. Can we have the impact of the edible playground? <laughs> 
the edible playground well I think they're very excited about it. They've done some planting. They're watching things growing. But obviously it's autumn now, the time of, you know, death. (laughs) (laughs) Of Of, of, of all the quotes I could want for for today's show, (laughs) it is the time of death at Heatherfield Primary School. (laughs) No, but no, I think they are like, maybe they're planting some broad beans and stuff, which you can grow in the autumn. But obviously in the spring and summer, it will really come into its own and will be a very exciting space for the children. Well, (laughs) (laughs) Your, your daughter is yeah. uh, wearing a Macintosh covered in flowers. Yeah. Uh, which suggests to me that if there were any audience for this garden, then uh, surely yeah. it would be she. What does she make of it? Um, I think she's ex- she's excited about it. They like growing stuff. We've got we've had an allotment in the past, so they've done a fair bit of growing, and I think they're very excited. Obviously, I think the exciting thing is when you get to eat it, eat eat the produce. Uh, what's your name? Isaac. I should point out, Isaac, that you are not the girl in the flowery Macintosh that I was just referring to. No. You are a man on a scooter. Yes. Uh, have you been in the garden? Have you been trying it out? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I've tried stuff. You've been planting things? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, what sort of thing have you been planting? I've been planting... What have I been planting? I think carrots, it might have been... And uh, vegetables! Obviously. Said a quiet sister. Yeah, uh, I've also been planting t- turnips, maybe, or what they're called, radishes, yeah. Maybe them. I've forgotten, because I've done it all last year. I'm, I'm kind of curious. When they turn into uh, vegetables and they're ready and they're ready to eat, are you going to be cooking them or are you going to be passing them to someone else? I'm going to probably be eating them and probably the people, the, pe- the cooks will be cooking them. Obviously, I'm not um, a cook like that. I'm not paid and I'm just a school child. I quite like radishes because they're spicy and I like stuff like that. Just one other question I've got for you. I noticed that you're an active man. Yes. Um, I noticed that this garden has taken up a little bit of your playing field. And and now, is that that a problem or is it a good thing? I quite like it. You see, there's enough space for doing football and stuff like that in sports. Um, But they had it just normal. Then they added, like, an extra bit of it and I wasn't totally... I didn't totally agree with it, let's say. And so, yeah, I really like it. I think it was a good idea. And my, my old school that I went to didn't have anything like it at all. It was a bit concrete and that was it, really. What, what if, if this isn't a personal question, what have you got at home? Have you got uh, space to grow stuff there? Yeah, we've got a garden, yeah. stuff yeah. like that. We don't live in a flat. Yeah, we've got so. gardens grow stuff. Yes, we grow stuff at home. I'm not... takes a lot of commitment, dedication and organisational skills to be a good food grower. What, what happens over winter? Do you have to do it... Is it just a case of watching, uh, watching the earth or do you, do you have to do stuff to it uh, over winter? Well, you have to make sure you get up all the old crops in the winter. There's different schools of thought about what to do. Like, you get permaculture, they're into the no-dig policy, and then you oh, get... Sorry, I just stopped understanding anything you were saying. <laughs> well, there's a kind of school of thought about permaculture. Have you heard of permaculture? No, no. Oh, well, that's like a kind of approach to gardening and lots of other things permanent culture I think it refers to so they're really into like no dig policy so that the soil structure isn't disrupted so that you keep the maximum amount of like worms and you know because obviously when you dig you do actually uh, aggravate the soil structure and the organisms living in the soil whereas some other people in the winter they love digging loads and obviously when it's not too wet otherwise you break your back 
<laughs> but you can do you can definitely do things in the winter but a lot of it is like just enjoying the produce that you've been you know that you've harvested and you've preserved or pumpkins which keep themselves you know well you're, you're saying uh, permaculture and no dig policy i'm hearing lazy gardening yeah i'm not a permaculturist but i am a bit of a lazy gardener but i'm not too sure about the no dig policy because i think you need to get rid, rid of the weeds uh, this raises the delightful specter of garden wars are, are you sort of at loggerheads with other parents from time to time no oh, <laughs> I, I want some controversy <laughs> No, not at all. Not, not trails at 50 paces? <laughs> no. I haven't got that involved. In the last school the kids went to, I was the gardener with the kids uh-huh. in their old school. They only joined here a year ago, and they had about four raised beds, and I used to go and do gardening with the kids because nobody else would do it. Some children hadn't done gardening for four years. <laughs> and so I went and did it with them. But a lot of the kids, what they actually wanted to do, and what I suggested to a teacher here is they just want to dig and make mud and actually a lot of the, the the actual process of planting seeds is a bit too delicate for some of them and they get so excited just by digging mud that they're almost inhaling it you know up to the elbows heads in just loving it so you know that should be taken into consideration as well not just growing food yeah right because all those people are going to go into <laughs> engineering civil engineering those sort of that they need somewhere to practice as well I think it's just a kind of innate connection with with earth you know a lot of kids in london they don't get the opportunity to dig in dirt which is a bit weird really yeah <laughs> it is yeah <laughs> one thing that's been niggling at me what is water harvesting does that just mean sticking a barrel next to a drain pipe do you know the answer what, what is- um, i think it's um collecting water and I think it's most about the strength because if you fill a, a massive thing full of water, kids can't really carry it. It's quite heavy for them. So normally it supplies um, two kids for a very heavy bat- um, barrel. That's what I think. That's an excellent answer. Thank you very yeah. much. Okay. Uh, thanks a lot. Take care. <laughs> okay, thanks. Bye. <laughs> uh, hello, hello. Are you a student at this, uh, at this school as well? Yes. What is your name? Eva. Hi, Eva. Now, we're talking about the garden, you know that, right? You look uh, a very studious sort. I notice you have your folder under your arm. Are you a gardening type of person? Yes. Were you a gardening type of person before the garden arrived? Yes. Tell me about that. What do you enjoy about gardening? I enjoy that you, like, get to get your hands dirty and the way it's just fun, just making sure that you know that you have, like, plants growing what sort of thing do you like to grow? Strawberries. <laughs> I like that, you know, some people would list off a whole bunch of different things, but you, you've got your eye on the main crop. It's strawberries, please. Is that because you like eating strawberries? I like eating strawberries and many other fruits. Good, this sounds like a healthy thing. So um, I'm wondering, have you had anything to do with these uh, chests of drawers full of strawberries? Mm, no. Do you know about these? No. I've got good news for you. You see, you see over there that you've got this the kind of stair rail coming down, and then just off to the right of it, there's a set of drawers there, like you find in your bedroom. Yeah. See, those those are full of strawberries, I'm told. Okay. <laughs> uh, listener, between you and I, I think what's going on in this person's brain is I'm going to get those strawberries at some point. <laughs> what about at home? Do you get much of a chance to do gardening there? Is it a, a place that allows you to do that? No. What's the uh, What's the situation there? Well, uh, my granddad, he has an allotment and I help him plant 
um, plant things. He grows um, like apples, cabbages, beetroot, turnips and stuff Onions, like that. Cucumbers, pumpkins, <laughs> tomatoes, everything that mummy likes. I see the uh, the common theme here. So you don't go for flowers at all, though. It's all it's all the delicious edible stuff. Oh, definitely. I go for. I like the allotment. I don't dig, but I like the benefits of it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, quite quite right too. We were talking about the parks locally as well, because we're all about green spaces and trees and good stuff to eat. What, what are the local uh, parks like around here? Have you got enough of them? Uh, have you got the the trees that you need? Oh, definitely. Rockwell Park is really good for us, and then we've got Hillside. Um, I can't remember the name. And we've got Crystal Palace. Yeah, we've got the one that's like near the estate. Yeah, that little, that little green space. Yeah, yeah. it's OK for you. Not for Mummy, there's not enough shade for me. And yeah. But I saw, I saw a hillside park. looks as though it's in a bit of difficulty at the moment. I saw a big mm-hmm. sign there. Yeah, sign the petition. Yeah, I've, I've been on there to say um, that uh, particular place. I used to play there when I was a child, so it's got childhood memories for me that's very interesting because you've got that that perspective on things we were talking about uh, losing a lot of trees in the area generally is is this part of the world one that's got greener or less green i think it's got more greener because they've just planted some more trees in norwood high road as well so yeah and what sort of a difference has that made to you just makes it look really nice i like it yeah you can't go wrong there okay well listen i'll uh, let you go i think I think we're just dodging the rain. I've got that feeling it's about to start at any moment. So I want to let you guys get home before it does. Okay, no problem. Thanks a lot. Thank you. I'm with another people from the school. At least I'm assuming you're a people from the... You haven't just snuck in here to be interviewed, have you? Uh, no. You are, you are in fact a student here? Yes, yes. And uh, what's your name? Sophia. Hi, Sophia. I noticed from your accent that this might not be the first place you've lived. Um, no. Where, whereabouts are you from? New York City. Wow, okay, so when I think about New York City, I think about uh, a lot of buildings, and I don't think about much in the way of gardens. Um, yes, that is true. So what's your experience? You've, you've got the new garden here at the school. Uh, is this the first time you've had a school garden, I wonder? Um, I'm pretty sure, yeah. And have you been making full use of it? Have you been in the garden? Have you been planting stuff? Yes, have they been have. trying to get you there? I've been eating, I've been planting. What are the what are the benefits? What good is it doing the school? Well, um, there are a lot more fruits and vegetables. And I, actually, I think the lettuce is much better than before because we've grown it by hand and I just feel it like it's better. Is that because you kind of care about it a little bit more? Yeah. Do, do you think you're just, do you think it actually tastes better? Or it, it does taste better, right? I think, and the carrots and the tomatoes. And what about you? Are you kind of inspired to start doing gardening at home in your leisure time? Yes, uh, I really like gardening, actually, but I don't do it much at home because my grandmother usually does it with me, and she's not around. I have to, I have to be careful, because when you say she's not around, do you mean uh, she doesn't live here? Yeah. Yeah, okay. What's her speciality? Um, like... She likes planning. She likes planning. She likes planning. Planting. Oh, planting. <laughs> I thought she was like she was doing all the plans, and, and then she was making you do the work. And she does cook a lot, and her cooking is really good. And when she plants, she uses those vegetables and fruits to cook. And I think it's just 
it's better because we've grown it and we've put our care on it. Now, something I've realised when I've been talking to one or two of the other people who study here is that the ones who really seem to love the garden are ones where their family also enjoy working in the garden. Have you noticed any of the other kids maybe who don't have access to gardens or maybe they don't have a grandma who gardens? Have you noticed any of them getting into it? Um, Yes, I've seen a lot of children like that. Um, My mother is planting right now. She's in the PTA. So she does a lot of the gardening. And I guess she's trying to get some of the other kids involved who, uh, unlike you, maybe they don't have access to a garden. Yeah, they get involved. They they have their chances planting. And actually, on the edible garden opening, uh, a lot of children went in and they... they I kind of sneaked a few little bits. <laughs> uh, well, as long as you don't mention it to it. No, nobody's listening to this, you know that. Yeah. Good, but your secret's safe. (laughs) All right, thanks very much. Thank you. Well, it's the end of the school day football, as uh, as you'll be able to hear going on in the background, and lots of it as well. And I'm with the head of this school, Chris Ashley-Jones. Hi. Hello, good evening. Uh, good evening. Well, you'll be pleased to know, having taken a very scientific survey of your students, that everybody likes the edible playground. Indeed, we're very excited about it, I must say. It's been a, a great new addition to the school, and we're looking for it to blossom from here on in. And presumably the idea is to get sort of slave children working in there and provide the canteen with all the potatoes they can carry. I'm very disappointed you've worked it out already, but um, no, that isn't the actual plan. But the plan is to um, instill a love of nature and um, a knowledge about um, British food in particular. Also, we're going to try growing a few other things as well. But it's really to instill with the children a sense of what food is like and where it comes from, how it grows, seasonality. Um, so the idea is about that that comes into the the curriculum they learn about it and they can take that forward in their lives it's that understanding then of that all food isn't processed um, certain things come at certain times of the year and the idea is really to get them to really understand what a healthy diet is and the best way we find t- for children to get motivated by food and what they're eating is for them to be involved in the production of it or the cooking of it so this is the starting point for all of that We've been coming at this from the environmental angle for the show so far, but you, of course, are in a position to come at it from a slightly different perspective. And you'll have an overview of your kids and the sort of places that they're growing up in and uh, coming from. How would you characterise the majority experience where being in touch with those things is concerned? Well, Streatham, like London, is a very, very diverse community. Um, what makes our school work is the diversity. The fact that everybody at Hitherfield is a minority. Uh, we're sort of officially 80% ethnic minority, but we're, so everybody is in the minority, which works really, really well and things. Now, we come from a whole range of backgrounds here. We have um, social housing very close to us. Uh, we have refuges, and then we also have a lot of private housing as well. So we have a real good mix. Mm. So that means all the children coming to the school come from a whole range of different backgrounds and what we try and give as a school not just in this section but across the whole curriculum is a really broad and experiential sort of curriculum and sort of a real experience as well so we are very proud of being a London school and London school is recognising that actually some children don't have outside spaces don't get the chances to get their hands dirty whether it's with clay or in this case with soil and things so we're trying to give the children as many experiences as possible to sort of uh, basically balance the imbalance 
evidence of their previous experiences. I think I can probably predict the answer to this then from what, what you've just said, but do you find yourself tempted to allow those kids who've, who've not got outside space that they can call upon so readily, do you give them a bit more access or is it uh, even for all? Um, it's a bit of both, really, which probably sounds a bit confusing. But the fact is, we, we have got spectacular grounds at Hillerfield, and we've got the nature area, the field, as well as you can hear the football at the moment. So all children have access to all of that. Everybody will have access to the curriculum, to the edible playground. What we can do is, in addition to that, is we can target certain children and families to other experiences beyond the school gates, as well as we have sort of holiday provision going on through the school and through our cluster of schools. And we have um, our children's centre as well, where we can get to families very, very early on um, so we can actually impact on the children's lives and the lives of the parents as well from the moment the children are even born so you can actually register the birth of your child at our school so it starts from there really um, that, that's, that sounds very unusual uh, well we have we have a children's centre on site and the children's centre the ethos behind that and the reason for them is the fact that we want to try and support families from you know even actually before they give birth and things so we're, we have a milk spot here so we're a breastfeeding specialist as well Uh, We have health um, agencies coming to use the site and share that experience. We have employment opportunities. So it's the whole range, it's the whole child, it's the whole family and and ultimately the whole community as well. From from cradle to slightly out of the cradle? Uh, Yes, to secondary school at least. (laughs) Right. What about one, one thing we haven't had a chance to touch on so far, and uh, I, I should preface it by saying we don't get down to this part of the world nearly often enough. We tend to be in the centre of town, and Streatham, n- not yet a place we've visited. What should we know about Streatham? Well, you're putting me on the spot now, but thankfully I have lived in Streatham as well. I live in Tootingbeck at the moment, but I have lived in Streatham too. Um, Streatham is an amazing place, actually. I think, like lots of parts of London, it went through a sort of um, a slightly dodgy period, shall we say, um, probably about 20 years ago, where um, things weren't going quite as well as they are now. But certainly the local authority and business have invested in Streatham, so Streatham has gone through a sort of mini-transformation. It's got very, very good housing stock, which means that it's really brought a lot of families into the area so actually there's huge demand on school places, that's why we're very lucky at the moment that we're standing with fantastic new facilities around us because the local authority felt fit enough to invest in the school to expand the school Um, but Streatham has a really lot going for it it's now got a whole fantastic cafe culture going on, Um, it's a very very vibrant and exciting place to live, we have the Streatham Food Festival, so it is a, a place, part of London in transformation I would say. And always it's interesting to get an idea of where a place is come from so if we were to go back and this i don't know the extent to which this will be testing you if we were to go back 100 or 200 years what would we have found in this area well, if you went back about 110 years, you would have found Hitherfield Primary School in this area. And at that <laughs> point, it was, I believe, a sort of tin shed that was um, you know, basically educating just boys only to start with. And then it did gradually build up from there. So the school has certainly been here since the beginning of, the, of sort of Streatham's real existence and things. I can't tell you too much about the history before that, apart from to say that, you know, we've got... Well, the more recent history of things is, well... There's very famous links to um, some notorious characters as well, um, but obviously Ken Livingstone is also a Streatham person. I'm not putting him in the notorious category, but um, he's also a Streatham person too. So um, it's it's been um, a period of place of change, I would say. And you can certainly see uh, just from the, the street architecture, a lot of streets with terraced houses. They look as though perhaps 100 years ago they'd have been inhabited by clerks or somebody of that sort going into the city. More recently, big housing developments 
of uh, blocks of flats as you get towards Brixton, and I can only imagine that that adds to that air of uh, a mixed community. It, it does indeed. I mean, there's quite a lot of new buildings going around, a lot of new flats in the area. Um, because of the housing stock, there are some quite large houses. A lot of that was turned into flats as well. However, we have retained quite a good mix of sort of you know family housing, as they call it, as well as the flats. As it, as I said earlier on, there is um, quite a large area of social housing as well. But that's the the joy of London, isn't it? And the fact that you always have those sort of multi-million pound homes next or to social housing and that's what works so well in the area really it's not often I get to talk to a head teacher, uh, and I always uh, like to find out the, the sort of the inside track uh, with anybody I speak to. What I want to know from you is, uh, as a head teacher, particularly perhaps as a London head teacher, when you arrive in a new job, what don't you want to discover? What do you want to discover? How does it work? What are your secret fears and the secret delights as a head teacher? Well, I suppose I'm slightly different in the fact that I was the deputy head at this school before I took over as a head um, nine years ago, and. I suppose, well, you wouldn't want to find anything hidden away. And, um, you know, we did have um, a couple of things that we discovered, shall we say. And if you Google us, you'd probably find what those were. But I'm not going to go into that too much either at the moment. But um, I think what you really want to discover is the fact that you want to find a motivated staff. And what we've done here, because you know, the staff are your greatest resource as a school. And what we've done here is we've you know, continued to motivate the staff, get the right staff that you can get into the school. The teachers and the sports staff at Hitherfield are really motivated and they're doing a grand job and once you get that sorted obviously the children and the families appreciate that and you get motivated children and therefore you get high achieving children where do you go as a, as a head teacher you're um, i can't see a gray hair on you there may be one or two lurking about but if one were thinking about the future as a head teacher would it be simply to remain and grow with the school or are there other steps that one can take it's obviously going to be a different response to every individual. I think it also depends on your circumstances. But um, in my case, I came to a school that was two form entry that wasn't completely full. And what we've done over the last nine years is we've built a new children's centre. We've had a £6 million expansion. We're in the process, almost finished the process of going from two to three forms of entry. So this job has been transformational, as in the school has been transformed in the last nine years. So personally for myself, it's about continuing that drive towards outstanding. We are currently good with outstanding features and we want to be an outstanding school. We're pretty close to it. So there's still a lot of work to do here. Beyond that at the moment, who can say? <laughs> that was an exceeding... Listener, uh, if you want to hear an answer done well, that was, that was it. <laughs> We're heading to Christmas time and I remember the school nativity play with fondness having been cast as Joseph every single year that I was at school. I'm not, I don't know why, really. Probably. I didn't have a beard you when I was... didn't have a beard then, I was going to say, probably because of the beard. You certainly wouldn't have been a Mary anyway. But the, the, obvious, <laughs> the obvious choice with the beard, yes. And you hear a lot of stuff talked about how Christmas gets handled, particularly in multi-ethnic yes. London school. How do you go about handling Christmas? Uh, well, we celebrate the diversity of our school. So if you came about a month or so ago, we were having our Eid celebration. Um, we do celebrate Christmas. We almost call it the, Christmas, the Hitherfield prom season because we are now a large school. We've got over 650 children children at the site so we actually have about 12 Christmas concerts because um, we have to in order to get all the parents into the actual hall to observe and to watch it and to enjoy seeing their children perform we need to have them spit into various classes and all that sort of stuff going on so we do celebrate it big style shall we say it is still a very important uh, celebration what we tend to do is with the younger children we have the more traditional nativity and then as you go into the older children it's still a Christmas theme and still obviously the message is there but it becomes slightly more sort to, I won't go as far as say pantomime-ish but it's a bit more that way sort of thing but um, you know, virtually every single child in the school will be involved in these productions Have you, have you picked out your Joseph yet? I am available 
I'll bear it in mind. <laughs> and Sharon, if people want to find out more about your organisation, Trees for Cities, they can do so, treesforcities.org, I think. Yes, that's right. And if you go there, you'll see that we're doing this fantastic event, Freeze for Trees, at the local Brockwell Lido. And so people are jumping in, and for, you can jump in for 10 minutes or swim a couple of lengths just to raise money for trees. So it's on the 13th of September. Go to our website and join us. Yes, turn blue to go green. You can have that if you want. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Chris Ashley, Jones, Sharon Johnson, thanks very much. Pleasure. Nice to meet you. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Sharon Johnson, Chris Ashley Jones, and the pupils and parents at Hitfield Primary School. Thanks too to Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolf. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.